One thing you probably don't know about me is that, and really the cat's out of the bag right here, I love Hallmark movies. Not just during the Christmas season either. I'm kind of an all-season Hallmark guy. I love that each movie starts off with the main character leading a happy life. And then he or she comes to some type of complication. I love that there's always a chance encounter with the ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend that we never saw coming. I love how they hate each other at first, and then they start to warm up, leading to this near kiss. That then leads to a misunderstanding that, again, we never saw coming. And finally, after the serious fallout, I love the conclusion that brings reconciliation and a happy ending. The book of Ruth is kind of like the hallmark movie of the Bible. We love this book so much. It's kind of got it all. It's got complication. It's got chance encounter, romantic love, a possible misunderstanding that gives way to a happy ending. Yet unlike hallmark movies, the book of Ruth is so much more than a romantic story. You see, the book of Ruth is set uniquely in the biblical canon that moves the biblical story inescapably towards the one who will come to crush the serpent. It teaches us about God's divine providence being worked out in the lives of ordinary people like you and me. And also, this book demonstrates patterns of God's grace that God uses to sanctify people's lives. Is the book of Ruth a love story? Absolutely. Yet it's so much more, teaching us about the God whom we serve and calling us to trust Him. I pray that we would walk away from this small series trusting God all the more. So let's open up our Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. And I have two points for us this morning that capture each chapter that we're going to be in. In chapter 1, we will see grace concealed, and in chapter 2, we will see grace revealed. And so the book of Ruth, if anybody's struggling to find it, it's kind of at the beginning of your Bible, it's after the Pentateuch, and then it's Joshua judges Ruth. So maybe like the seventh book of the Bible, so if any of you guys are struggling to find it. And I'm not going to read both chapter 1 and chapter 2 in this sitting. As I work through the passage, I will be reading most of it, but we're going to read chapter 1, 8 through 18. So everybody, please stand on your feet with God's word. Naomi said to them, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you've shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. They said to her, we insist on returning with you and your people. But Naomi replied, return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters. My life is much too bitter for you to share. 
because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Again, they wept loudly, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, Ruth, or, or kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. This is the word of God. You may be seated. All right, so we see in Ruth 1, specifically in verses 1 through 5, we get the context. And really in verse 1, right out of the gate, we get the setting of the book. The author says, during the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. All right, so we need to pause and think about the setting for a second. What was happening in the time of the judges? Well, the book of Judges, for the most part, is a really bleak book in the Bible. You see, this book kind of captures Israel's rampant disobedience. Judges 17.6 is kind of like the, the core of the book when the writer says, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So here we're at a point between Israel's settlement in Canaan and God electing Saul as the first king of Israel. A point where Israel has rebelled against Yahweh, their covenant Lord, resulting in severe consequences like God cutting off the rain and sending a famine. And the narrator wants us to see that this is no coincidence, that this is no accident. This is God's judgment on the people. So we continue in verse 1 to see the narrator introduce a family who left Bethlehem in Judah to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The husband's name was Elimelech, the wife's was Naomi, and she had two sons named Malan and Chilion. And the text says they entered the fields of Moab and settled there. And so as students of the Bible, especially reading historical narratives like Ruth, we need to pay careful attention to the author's detail. The writer skillfully brings us into this magnificent account, mostly through small details that we might be tempted to skip over, like the term Bethlehem. And I want you all to respond to this. Does anybody know what the word Bethlehem means? Come on. That's exactly right. We got a Hebrew scholar. We actually got two of them. So praise God for that. That's what it means, house of bread. The, ironic, the, the writer ironically shows us that his family left the house of bread because of the absence of bread. And where did they go? They headed across the Jordan to Moab east of the Dead Sea. And the move to Moab seemed incredibly bizarre. The family was leaving a place that God had marked his covenantal blessing on for a pagan land filled with pagan people. 
Also, the history of Israel and the Moabites was not a good history at all. The Moabites' origin was an incestuous relationship with Lot and his daughters. And you'll remember in Numbers, when the Moabite women came and seduced the Israelite men, that led to God's judgment. You see, these details should cause something in us to rise up saying, they went there for there? Why is that? Nevertheless, the writer does not tell us how to interpret this move. Yet it seems, it seems like Elimelech and his family should have clearly perceived the writing on the wall. That the famine was localized to only Israel. And maybe, just maybe, Yahweh was calling them to repent and turn back to him. Nonetheless, the narrator, the narrator just gives us details of this move that led to a nightmare scenario for Naomi. Upon entering the fields of Moab, Naomi's husband Elimelech died, and the text says she was left with her two sons. Now, the situation is bad, but it's not as bad as it could be. Naomi still has her sons to provide for and to provide grandchildren for, for her to continue on the family line. Not all is lost. There is still hope. And so we pick it up in verse 4 when we read, Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, and the second was Ruth. I think most of us are sitting here thinking to ourselves, all right, all right, I'm not an expert in the Mosaic law, but this just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem right that they took Moabite wives. And you're exactly right. Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 4 prohibits marriages with pagans. Now, I want to point out this again. The narrator, he doesn't declare his own opinion. Yet it does seem like Naomi should have stopped these marriages. We read in verse 4 that they were married for 10 years, yet neither Orpah nor Ruth had given birth to a child. Their barrenness, like the famine in Bethlehem, should have signaled God's judgment seems to be upon us. It's a pretty tough opening scene, right? <laughs> These first five verses. And some of us might be thinking here at this moment, all right, is Naomi suffering for her sins directly? Like, I think that's a good question to ask. I think it's a logical question to ask. Because of her sin, is she suffering? And the answer is, maybe, maybe not. We just don't know. The text doesn't give us any indication to make that judgment. Yet I think there is something that we do know. We do know that she is suffering alone. She is suffering in a foreign land away from anyone to point her to the goodness of Yahweh. And NBC, I want to ask you, is anyone in here suffering? Whether it might be because of your sin directly or it just be because of your in this sin-soaked world. You might be suffering remarkably right now like Naomi. Yet I do want to tell you that you do not have to suffer alone. When we come to Christ, we see a, and we'll see this in a fuller picture in Ruth's speech, we're united to both God and his people. His people become our family. His family is now our family. 
And I want to say, don't follow after Naomi's example of separating herself from God's people, especially in the midst of suffering. Talk to our pastors, Joshua and John. Fill in your brothers and sisters here at NBC so that we can pray for you. Don't isolate yourself, maybe some, through some of the hardest seasons in your life. Allow us to bear your burdens with you. That's what family's for. All right, so Naomi's present situation seems quite desperate. She's without husband, without sons, without future, and ultimately in her eyes, she's without hope. Yet the narrator wants us to see this impossible odds that Naomi's up against. Why? Because if the impossible becomes possible, then it can only be by the hand of God. So this brings us to our first point this morning, grace concealed. And so we come to a change of scenery in verses 6 through 7 that just might indicate a change in Naomi's fortune. Let's pick it up in verse 6. She and her daughter-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing food. She left the place where she, she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. You see, thinking about this right now, it's doubtful that Naomi can see, at, can see this at the present moment, but there's a ray of sunshine peering through the dark clouds that lay over her life. Naomi is headed back towards the promised land because she heard about God's provision for his people. She heard about God's divine grace. And she probably doesn't perceive it like that, but again, that's exactly what it is. Think about this with me. Naomi, all the way in Moab, all the way, heard about God's good news. And what is this good news? God intervened. He has lifted the famine and provided his people with food. The house of bread can live up to its name once again. God's favor was back on his people. And divine grace is the only explanation in the sequence of events. And it only comes through the providential hand of God. Look, Naomi hearing about the famine being lifted and the provision itself did not happen by accident or coincidence. The writer wants us to see that. No, it happened by God's providence. You see, a main theme throughout the book of Ruth is God's divine providence. This is his preserving, operating, directing, and governing over all creation. We've been singing in my house for like the last week. God's got the whole world in his hands. And then we'll throw in some random animal like a meerkat or a lion and then just sing it. And we've been doing that for like a week. And I was thinking about God's providence. It's like singing God's, and I'm not going to do it right now, but it's like singing God's got Naomi in his hand. But it takes it a step further, not just that he has Naomi in his hand, but he's directing her wherever he wills. I think that's a good explanation of God's divine providence. And the narrator is calling us to look and consider how wise God's sovereign purposes really are, even in the lives of ordinary people like you, me, 
and Naomi. The, the, the author's calling us emphatically to look. This is our wise, sovereign Lord who is guiding all things for his glory and his people's good. Yet Naomi, she sees none of this. She knows that the death of her husband meant the loss of her economic support. One commentator helpfully said, to, to, to put us in the context, that widowhood often meant inevitable alienation and destitution. And that's exactly why we see three times that she pleads for Orpah and Ruth to return back to their homes. It's easy to think of Naomi as some old woman suffering from some type of lone ranger syndrome due to the loss. Yet she loves both Orpah and Ruth, which is why she advises them to go home. And I want us to feel the weight of this scene that we've come upon. We have three women together, and they have suffered immensely. And through that, they form this unique bond. Yet Naomi cannot bear to bring them back with her. So she stops them on the way to Bethlehem. She pauses. She knows what's ahead. She doesn't want Orpah and Ruth to face, this, to face the same alienation and the same destitution that is destined for her. So she says this. She says, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed him and they wept loudly. Naomi's first plea to her daughter-in-law is an interchange of blessing. She prayed that God would show them kindness as they have shown to her. This word kindness is the Hebrew word hesed. And a commentary was very helpful in defining this, but you really can't define hesed with one English word. It's a covenant term that displays all of God's positive attributes. His love, his grace, his mercy, faithfulness, generosity, kindness, and loyalty. It's a difficult word to define because it goes above and beyond just kindness, how the narrator defines it. It's someone who goes beyond their duties of requirement. You see, Naomi affirms that these two women have gone above and beyond what's been required of them. And she prays that the Lord would return the favor by granting them what they need most, rest in the house of a new husband. So Orpah and Ruth, they don't want to turn back, and they insisted in verse 10 that they would stay with Naomi. So Naomi, she starts to kind of turn up the heat a little bit in her argument with these two bulletproof arguments that she gives about the reality of her present situation. She explains to them that what they need the most, she cannot provide for them. She is too old to have sons that could become their husbands. I want to point out this because I think this is an interesting part of the text. It's interesting to note that Naomi's in in intention of the preservation of her family seems like just an afterthought. If not, it's just abandoned completely. You see, she is interested only in her daughter-in-law's welfare, not some impossible probability. And so her second argument moves to the hypothetical. Okay, even if I could bear sons tonight, they would not, you guys would not be willing to wait until these sons grew up into adulthood. Why? Because you, both Orpah and Ruth, would be out of your childbearing years. She says over and over and over, 
return home, my daughters. There is no life for you in Judah, and my life is much too bitter for you to journey with me. Well, these two passionate arguments persuade Orpah to turn back as she wept loudly, kissed her mother-in-law, and left. Yet Ruth, what does the text say? Ruth clung to her. And we see Ruth's response in verses 16 through 17. This is some of the most famous words in the Old Testament. You see, she gives a command and then a threefold plea that ends with a final oath. And it's this beautiful, poetry-like confession. And she starts off in verse 16 by saying, Don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. A.K.A., she looks at her mother-in-law. I'm not saying for us as men who have wives to do this, but she looked at him and said, just stop it. Actually, I don't advise to do that at all. But this is what Ruth did. She looks at her and says, just stop it. And then that leads her to say, for where you go, I will go. And where you live, I will live. Ruth doesn't know where the future will take Naomi, but she does know that wherever it takes her, Ruth will be by her side. The plea intensifies as she goes on next, and this is like the crown in the confession, this very middle part. This is the climax of what she's saying to Naomi. She says, your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. She renounces her past. She renounces her ethnicity. She renounces her heritage and even her gods to adopt Naomi's people, Naomi's culture, and Naomi's God. She confesses that Yahweh is her God, thus rejecting the false gods that she once worshipped. And she horizontally commits to God's people. You see, I think we see right here a converted woman with radical faith as she confesses her unwavering commitment to both Yahweh and Naomi. She then deepens her commitment as she goes on and says, where you die, I will die, and there I shall be buried. One might think to yourself at this point, it's like, all right, Ruth's commitment is only for a short while. She can easily turn back to Moab when her old mother-in-law dies. But the final plea leaves no room for that cop-out. She commits to be buried where Naomi is buried. She is not going back. Finally, this confession gives way to an oath. She says at the end, thus may the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. She calls upon Yahweh, her covenant Lord, for a witness to her oath, pledging herself even more to what she has committed to. In summary, she abandons everything she has formerly known in faith to cling to this poor widow woman. This is total and absolute commitment. And I want to say this about this confession. Upon hearing this, some of us might be thinking to ourselves, man, this kind of sounds a little bit like Abraham. Like there's some similarities between Ruth and Abraham, right? It's like they left their homeland not knowing where they were going. Yet, I kind of want to point out that Ruth's leap of faith, it seems kind of to outshine Abraham's in some senses because she didn't have a promise. She didn't have a covenantal blessing. She didn't have a spouse or property or support. 
Nonetheless, there's a lot of overlaps. There's a lot of similarities between the two. And I think the author's goal is kind of subtly pointing this out so that we remember what the Lord did for Abraham. And upon remembering what the Lord did for Abraham, we're thinking, all right, the Lord just might do that for Ruth. So, all right, what's Naomi's reaction to Ruth's well-known confession? When verse 18, she, Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, and so she stopped talking to her. <laughs> it's kind of bizarre, isn't it? It's like it's hard to grasp why Naomi didn't even utter, utter the words thank you or I love you or even like fine or okay. She says nothing. You see, the sadness and bitterness that surround her life it kind of probably acted as a deep fog, concealing God's grace that was right in front of her. Maybe she couldn't stop thinking about what her fellow Israelites might think about this young Moabite daughter-in-law with her. Maybe she's thinking, my sin will be all the more evident with her by my side. Yet she doesn't even realize God's sweet providential hand in her life. She can't even fathom at this moment that through her Moabite daughter-in-law, God would bless her. And God would not only bless her, but he would ultimately bless the world. I want us to be reminded about our God who providential hand is working in the lives of ordinary people like you, like me, and like Naomi. You see, let's think about Ruth for an for just an instance. Ruth's conversion is monumental in the pages of Scripture. Yes, Ruth has clung to Naomi to care for her and ultimately will continue her family line through Boaz. That's a serious spoiler alert for us. Yet God's good intention is far greater than just her family. You see, their child's grandson will ultimately bless the nation of Israel as King David will reign in righteousness. That's a really big spoiler alert. A man after God's own heart. But his purposes, God's purposes, is not just within the nation of Israel. This is the biggest spoiler alert all. No, our God doesn't stop there. Through Ruth's family line, a baby will be born that will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Through her descendant, the whole world will be blessed. You see, God is truly working in the lives of ordinary people to accomplish his purposes, whether Naomi clearly perceives it or not. And the question is, will we trust him? So it seems like Naomi's life upon returning back to Bethlehem was steeped in unbelief. Their arrival creates a type of stir among the Israelites. They couldn't believe she was back. Nonetheless, Naomi, in her mind, was not back. Mara was. Naomi means pleasant and lovely, yet she requests to change her name, meaning bitter. She isn't hiding her pain. She isn't hiding her bitterness. She isn't hiding her hopelessness. And she isn't hiding who she believes is the one behind this. And she says it. Yahweh has brought me back empty. The Almighty has afflicted me. Now I want to say this. Naomi does not charge the Lord with sin. She rightly affirms God's sovereignty in her life. 
yet she is missing something of the utmost importance. She's missing God's grace. She ascribes God's sovereignty apart from his grace. And this is a disposition right here of a bitter woman. Yet what's concealed to Naomi, oh, is so evident to us. God's at work in the life of his people. And we end this chapter in verse 30, verse 22 with the words, they arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. It's not a coincidence or accident that Naomi and Ruth's arrival comes when food in Bethlehem is most plentiful, giving them time to store up food until the dry seasons come. God's grace is truly present. Which brings us to our second point, our final point in chapter 2, and that is grace revealed. So we make a turn to chapter 2, and we pick it up in verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. He was a prominent man of noble character from Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. So we're introduced right here, right out of the gate, to a new character in the account who will really take center stage for the rest of the book. He was a man of great reputation, admired by all in the community. And this man was from where? Elimelech's family. This is not some insignificant detail. We might even want to underline this phrase because the author is signaling to us that there might be hope for Elimelech's family. There might be hope for Naomi through the line of Boaz. So for the rest of the chapter, we're going to see unmatched grace shown through Boaz, and we will see this type of humility and courage shown through Ruth. You see, Boaz and Ruth will display this type of hesed kindness, and we'll especially see it in the way that Boaz both protects and provides for Naomi and Ruth. Grace is truly revealed through this man. And look, I want to say the writer wants us to see this. He wants us to see this grace, this hesed kindness in Ruth and Boaz. Yet, but if we stop short just thinking about Ruth and Boaz... We've missed the mark. We've missed the point of who the writer is wanting us, who the writer is desiring to point to. You see, we see, God's, we see Boaz, we see his matchless grace, we see his hesed kindness, but it's supposed to point us to God's grace and his kindness. We see Ruth's humility and courage, but the writer wants us to see God's courage and God's humility. You see, these good examples are to act as a mirror reflecting God's goodness. So we see it, let's keep that in the forefront of our minds, that they're like a mirror pointing us to God. All right, so back to the account. Naomi and Ruth, by God's providence, came to Bethlehem at the perfect time, the beginning of the barley harvest. Yet food wasn't going to just show up on their doorstep like room service in a fancy hotel. No, the pressing issue for Ruth and Naomi was food. Sure, Naomi desired grandchildren, but that wasn't as crucial as their food needed to survive. And secondly, close behind it, Ruth needed protection from crude owners. Remember, the author, author over and over reminds us of Ruth's ethnicity. Who was she? She was a Moabite, as verse 2 reminds us. And so, would owners be cruel and take advantage of Ruth the Moabite, the foreigner? 
or would she happen upon a man who demonstrated this remarkable grace to a vulnerable foreigner in need? Ruth clearly realized this when she asked in verse 2, Can I glean behind someone with whom I find favor? So we read in verse 3, Naomi grants Ruth's request to go and glean in the field. And the text says, She happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. This is awesome. I mean, this is like a Hallmark movie in the making right here. She happened to be in the field belonging to Boaz. The writer uses this phrase, happened, or quite literally, her chance chanced upon. It would be like us saying, by the stroke of luck. And so we got to ask the question, is the author saying, like, this is an accident, this is a complete coincidence? I think we all know that. Absolutely not. The writer uses a, a rhetorical device to cue us in that God is at work. This young Moabite woman found herself in a field owned by a prominent man of noble character that was a part of Naomi's clan. You can't make this stuff up. Our sovereign Lord is at work. All right, so let's pick it up in verse 5 when Boaz comes on the scene and his eyes lock on to this Moabite woman in the field. He asked his foreman or supervisor, whose young woman is this? It seems kind of strange to our modern ear that he would say that, right? He doesn't ask about her identity. He kind of asks about her owner or who does this woman belong to? The question seems ambiguous. Is he asking about her family line? Is he asking about who she's married to? I think my passion again for Hallmark movies might let me side with the latter, but we just don't know. I think the author is somewhat ambiguous to create this type of curiosity. Is Boaz thinking about whose woman is this? Is she married? Whose line does she come from? Who is she with? There's just a lot of, um, of uncertainty there ambiguity there. So this leads the foreman to answer in verses 6 through 7. She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. She asked, will you let me gather fallen grain among the bundles behind the harvesters? She came and has been on her feet since the early morning, except that she rested in the shelter. All right, so right here, the foreman recounts his conversation with Naomi. She explained to Boaz about Naomi's request. And I want to point out, we might not understand this upon this initial reading, but it's a pretty bold request that she asked. You see, God's kindness, he has set up laws in Israel to help the widow, the poor, the sojourner. In Deuteronomy 24, 19, the Lord says, when you reap the harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, do not go back to get it. Is it not it is to be left for the resident, the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow. And then he goes on to say in this passage, to leave a little bit left behind, do not harvest everything, so that people like Ruth can come along and collect the remnants. All right, so I think Ruth understands that, but it seems like she takes a step further, courageously asking to not just glean from the standing corner stalks, no, but among the piles already harvested. And we come to verse 7, and I want to point out that commentators say verse 7 is literally the hardest verse to interpret in all of this book. 
But I'm saying, I'm taking a guess, it seems like the foreman is saying that she requested this and has been waiting for the owner to grant her request. Why does she just wait? Why is she just standing there? I'm not really sure. Maybe the foreman didn't have authority to grant this to her. Or maybe she understands what could be um, her fate with a crude owner, so she waits for the owner's blessing. Whatever it is, we don't know, but finally we get to what we've been waiting for. We get a dialogue from Boaz and Ruth in verses 8 through 9. The tension has been building and building, and now we have Boaz and Ruth face to face. All right, we got the scene set. Their eyes are locked onto one another. Ruth's hair is blowing in the Mediterranean wind, and Boaz takes one step. No, I'm just kidding. That does not happen. That's just a hallmark talking. No, actually, in all seriousness, Boaz treats this young Moabite woman like one of his own. His first words give evidence to this when he says, listen, my daughter. This is far from a flirting hallmark scene. Boaz's intentions with her are completely pure. He is after her protection above all things. He orders her not to leave this field. Don't go anywhere else. Stay close to my female servants. I've ordered the young men not to touch you. You don't have to worry about cruelty. You don't have to worry about racism or hate. I've got you. You see, we see God's grace revealed through Boaz's protection. The fear of rejection and harm has dissipated. Ruth has, in some ways, like been brought into the fold of Israel. She's not to be considered as an outsider, but one of Boaz's workers that deserve protection. This is the Hesed kindness that we talked about earlier. Someone going above and beyond their duties of requirements. And we know Ruth didn't presume on Boaz's kindness because of her reaction in verse 10. She falls to her face in reverence and gratitude, asking the question, why me? I'm a foreigner. What humility right there. And as I was thinking about this, like presuming on kindness, I was thinking about if there are any unbelievers in the room. If you're a visitor here, I wonder if you're presuming on God's kindness. Like you might be doing it consciously, maybe you're doing it subconsciously, but maybe you're thinking to yourself, you know, maybe I'll come to God when I experience X or I experience Y. Like maybe I'll come to God then. Or maybe even you're thinking to yourself, you know, maybe when I get to, you know, when I die and I face God, he will be kind to me. He will be kind to me because the good works that I've done. We actually read in Romans 2, you might know this, you might not, but God's kindness that he shows us, even you being in this room right now, should lead you to repentance. That's the purpose of God's kindness, is to lead us to repentance. And so for you, God will not show you kindness if you meet him face to face apart from Jesus Christ. He will not show you kindness then, but he's showing you kindness now. He's showing you kindness because you're here listening to the word of God. You can repent and believe and be reconciled to him. And so I encourage you, don't presume on God's kindness. Repent and believe in Jesus. All right, so back to the dialogue. 
Boaz answers Ruth's question in verses 11 through 12, revealing to the audience that he's in fact heard about her self-sacrifice. He's connected the dots. He knows who her mother-in-law is. He sees it and he goes and asks the Lord that he might reward Ruth. All right, so we thinking about this. Maybe Boaz realizes this. Maybe he doesn't. But, you know, in partial, Ruth's reward from the Lord is being played out right before his very eyes in the way that he himself is protecting her and as we'll see in the way that he provides for her. So I'm going to summarize a lot of the last part where we see God's grace revealed in the way that he provides for Naomi and Ruth through Boaz. And we see this in verses 15 through 18. We see this unbelievable generosity of Boaz. You see, he calls his employees to not only let her follow behind to glean, but also he goes above and beyond saying, take some grain that we've already cut down. I love this part because the writer says that Ruth gathered grain until, Ruth gathered grain in the field until evening. She works and she works hard. This is a Proverbs 31 woman before Proverbs was ever written. Ruth knows that her family will not eat apart from her work, and so she gets after it. All right, and I want to pause right quick and just say this quickly. I've said this over and over that we've seen God's sovereignty, right? We've seen his providential hand over and over in the way that, um, in the way that he, you know, Boaz just comes upon the field in the way that he sends them to Bethlehem at the perfect timing. But right here in this verse, we see um, human responsibility, right? Those things aren't competing. No, those things go together. We see God's sovereignty, and we also see his respo- uh, human responsibility in the way that he calls his people to work and obey. All right, so Ruth beat out what she gathered, and it was about 26 quarts of barley. And unbelievably, this is around 30 to 50 pounds of grain. Glance with me at verse 18. She picked up the grain and went into town. I want to point out, this might be obvious, but she did not call her friend with the truck. Amen to everybody who owns trucks in here, right? No, she saw this as an opportunity to really get her CrossFit on. She carries and hauls 30 to 50 pounds of grain into town where she lives. That's kind of unbelievable to think about. What a woman. And this grain would have been able to last them for about half a month. And so, yes, I want to point out Ruth's work ethic, but look at Boaz's generosity. He gives, he gives, and he gives. He goes above and beyond what's required of him. Look at the grace of God through the grace of Boaz. And so, the chapter ends with Naomi's surprise of God's provision from Boaz and a little girl talk between her and Ruth at the end. It's interesting to see Naomi's reaction to Ruth's haul in verse 19 when she exclaims, May the Lord bless the man who noticed you. Remember, we saw earlier that Naomi understood the sovereignty of God, yet she ascribed God's sovereignty apart from his grace. This was a disposition of a bitter woman, but now we see her disposition change when the grace of God finally becomes evident to her. She proclaims Yahweh, the covenant name of the Lord, asking for him to bless this man 
who has gone above and beyond what's required to protect and provide for her family. And Ruth responds to her mother-in-law with the man's name, Boaz. And Naomi's wheels start turning. Oh, this man is more than just a generous man. No, he is Boaz, one of our family redeemers. And so you might be asking yourself, all right, all right, what does a family redeemer mean? We, we don't really use that language today. Well, a redeemer could be a brother, uncle, cousin, or close relative that would protect his extended family in different ways. You see, laws were set up in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that outlined specific ways in which redeemers could step in to save a family. And one of those ways was through this leveret marriage. You see, if a man died, his brother was obligated to marry the widow and raise up the children. You see, the dead husband's name would live on, ensuring that the inheritance would continue in the family. Yet this situation doesn't exactly parallel this type of marriage because Boaz isn't the brother of Elimelech. You see, he was just a family relative. Now, he can redeem them, but he's not obligated to do so. Nevertheless, Naomi's hopes have been lifted when she sees this man's great grace provide and protect for her family. Thus, immediately her mind goes to what she perceived earlier as impossible, a potential husband for Ruth that would carry on the family's name. Yet the chapter ends with the final word, and she lived with her mother-in-law, This hope of Boaz becoming a family redeemer is just a hope. We're kind of left with the question ringing in our ears. Will Naomi trust God? His grace has been evident in her life from the beginning to the end. Yet will she see it and trust Yahweh? And that's the question I want to walk away with for us this morning is will we trust God? His grace in our lives is present whether we see it or not. And I'm asking us together, whether you're in a season of famine or you're in a season that you feel like you can evidently see God's grace, will we still trust him? Because both of those seasons bring problems that we might be self-sufficient or we just might not see God's grace at all. I want us to be reminded of what Paul says in Romans 8.32. Because listen to us. We can clearly see God's grace because we're standing on this side of the cross. We can see it more evidently than Naomi could. Look at Romans 8.32. Paul says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son but offered him up for us all, how will he not also with him grant us everything? God gave his most precious gift, his only son, Jesus. He showed perfect hesed kindness in the way that he took on human form, in the way that he lived the life that we could not live, in the way that as Joshua talked about at last sermon, he drank the cup that was deserved for us. Look at God's grace. And Paul reminds us in Philippians that he is not done with us until we get to glory. That he will be with us, preserving us, sanctifying us until we're with him for all eternity. Look at God's grace in our lives. 
Yet still, we look around in the world and we're tempted not to trust him. But this text calls us right here to, sh- to reveal, to show that God is working. And he's working in ordinary people's lives like you and me. Will you trust him? Let me pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for your word. We praise you that every single part of scripture is breathed out by you. Every single part of scripture is for our edification and all your books point us to your son, Jesus. We praise you that Jesus showed us the perfect Hesed love who came and died on our behalf and now who is keeping us until glory. We pray that we would see your grace, we would see it clearly, and we would trust you all the more. In Christ's name, amen.